0: listening to the Alan Carter show on Global News Radio 640 Toronto.
1: Welcome to Friday. Thank you so much for spending some of your time with us this hour. Really appreciate it. We are down to the short strokes folks in the federal election. The final pitches being made trying to pitch some woo to you to see if you will vote for them come Monday. And I tell you, I think something is up. I'm going to go on the record here and say that The prediction of the liberal demise is premature. I think there is something up here, folks, and I'm going to go through here why I believe that the liberals are going to do better on Monday than the polls predict. This is not a partisan thing. This is just you know don't shoot the messenger if you're of a certain political persuasion. I'm going to go through why this is going to happen. One, Barack Obama. I don't put a lot of Emphasis behind the endorsement of Mr. Obama of Mr. Trudeau. I don't think that's changing a lot of votes, but here's what I think. Mr. Obama said in his tweet that it is important to defeat conservatives. And that is resonating, I think, with a lot of progressives who already suspected this, already were inclined to believe this, that especially in the cities, especially in Vote Rich 905 and a number of those ridings that could go either way, that it is more important to defeat conservatives than it is to punish liberals. And that is at play right now. That is reason number one. Reason number two, soft dipper support. And this kind of goes to the same point, but from a slightly different angle. Those who have reported in the polls that they are thinking of voting for Jugmeet Singh, obviously a lot to like there, very likable, has done great in this campaign, good debate performances. But in the past, we have seen this, that when it comes to E-Day, that vote does not show up. Either it's not motivated to actually go to the polling booth in the way that conservatives are. Those over 50, they vote. Those under 20, those under 25, maybe, maybe not. And again, in the polling booth, this feeling of, hmm, should I just place a vote to stop a conservative government? That is in play, folks. And watch that over the weekend, because I think that is what is going to be behind a better-than-expected liberal vote. And here's my third reason. It's Andrew Scheer wobbling at a moment when he needs to appear strong, he needs to appear like a leader, and he needs to be truthful. For example, suggesting that the liberals and the NDP would get together together and hike the GST. That's what was said today. You heard it in the news. Not to mention legalization of hard drugs, attacks on home sales. Why is the conservative leader claiming things saying that the liberals will do these things when the liberals so can ease so can easily shoot this down? It goes to credibility. I want to play this for you now. Here is Andrew sheer answering. A very pointed question from Katie Simpson of the CBC this morning. Well, it's not misinformation at all. Uh, we know that the Liberals uh, are contemplating these types of things. The uh, Liberal Member of Parliament, star member of Parliament, leading member of Parliament from the Liberal benches, uh, Adam Vaughn, is, 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 uh, was pushing for these types of uh, policies. We know the uh, uh, capital gains tax on primary residences is something that was uh, put for it. And the excuse that it's not in their platform, well, Justin Trudeau did a lot of things that wasn't in his platform uh, after 2015. <laughs> That is Andrew Scheer speaking this morning. Shortly after that, Mike LeCouture from Global National followed up with the same sort of question. And for the second time in a couple of days, he was booed and shouted down by partisans, by conservative partisans who was with the conservative leader. And it speaks to the anger and frustration on the conservative side that they haven't seemed to be able to gain the kind of traction to break free. And what I'm telling you is in these final days... As people look at Andrew Shear and they hear that, and they think, Well, there's no evidence of a ray, of a hike of the GST. Is this just fear mongering? Is it untruthful? And I think Mr Shear is being found wanting in this crucial time when people are making up their minds. And that's why I believe that there will be a stronger than expected liberal vote come Monday. Again. Don't shoot the messenger, folks. It's not a partisan thing. It's my analysis of what I think is going to happen. Shall we go to the final frontier? Shall we head to outer space for just one moment? The world's first female spacewalking team has made history high above the Earth today, floating out in the International Space Station to fix a broken part of a power network. NASA astronauts Christina Koch and Jessica Meyer emerged one by one, marking the first time in a half century of spacewalking that a woman floated out without a male crewmate with her. Paul Delaney is 640 Toronto's astronomy and space exploration expert and joins me on the line in just a couple of moments and he's going to talk about the significance of all of this and why they have to be out there, and what it is they're fixing at all. We're going to get to that in just a moment here on the Alan Carter Radio Program. Again, these are the first female astronauts to walk alone outside of the ISS, and Paul Delaney is with us. Hi, Paul. G'day. Hi there. How significant is this space block, and what is it that's happening today?
2: Uh, Well, it is the first, as you indicated, it's the first time that two women spacewalkers have been out there uh, doing what we've come to see uh, quite routinely. This is, in fact, the 221st spacewalk uh, associated with the uh, International Space Station, but it is the first time that two women have been doing it. Uh, Certainly, many, many of our spacewalkers, 14 of them, in fact, uh, prior to this, uh, have been women who have engaged in these activities. But this is, you know, fairly historic, Uh, but get used to it, because there's going to happen more and more frequently. What they're doing outside at the moment is, uh, and it's progressing along very well, they're replacing basically a battery charging unit. They've got uh, some additional batteries on board the International Space Station to store power that is collected by the solar panels for use uh, in the station uh, during the nighttime passes uh, and so on of the ISS. And the uh, charging unit, uh, which keeps these batteries topped up, failed. Now, it's only 19 years old, so I guess we can't really complain, uh, but they've gone out there and they're replacing it.
1: Paul, do they normally uh, spacewalk in pairs? Is, is that normal protocol?
2: Always, absolutely. Uh, It's partially because, of course, you really do need four hands out there to do all all the differing things, but also it's a safety uh, factor. Whenever you're deploying people on such a complex structure, uh, you want to make sure that they are absolutely as safe as is practical. They always are out there in twos. When we
1: talk about the ISS, and when you're talking about batteries that are, you know, older than some voters this coming Monday, uh, what what kind of uh, longevity does that space station have?
2: Well, that's actually a topic of great debate. Uh, originally, they had suggested that it would have a 20 to 25-year lifespan. It went into operation, fully operational, uh, I guess, in and around, well, 2000. So we're coming up on 19, 20 years. So it's getting to be a little old. Uh, no, None of the partners have actually committed beyond 2024 for the funding. So it is approaching the twilight zone, shall we say, of its... Uh, operational career. It is functioning very well. There have been very few major incidents that have occurred. There's been, like any house or laboratory, there have been little things. Uh, but the question is, will we continue to support it, especially in light of going back to the moon and deploying space stations in lunar orbit? That's a big topic of debate at the moment. But it certainly is still operating very, very well.
1: And then I guess the question is, is what happens to it? Is it a Skylab situation where we just let it burn up on re-entry?
2: No. um, Skylab, of course, was an uncontrolled re-entry, as the folks in Western Australia know full well in 1979. Uh, The ISS was always planned to be de-orbited in a more controlled fashion. So they literally would begin the reverse process. They would begin to disassemble it into pieces, and then with the equivalent of tugs or ferry units, would throw it into the atmosphere and burn it up over the South Pacific, but in smaller chunks. But eventually, all of it would come down. That was the original plan. Are they going to maintain that idea or will they uh, continue to make sure that even if it's abandoned, it will be retained in its current orbit by reboosts? Those are really good questions that probably we won't know the answers to for another four or five years. But certainly, if they do bring it down, uh, they will bring it down in a very controlled, segmented fashion.
1: Paul Delaney is 640 Toronto's astronomy and space exploration expert, Spock, your analysis. I appreciate you being on the program, Paul. Anytime. As Canadians ponder how to mark their ballots on Monday, the latest polling from Ipsos shows just how close things are. Conservative leader Andrew Scheer at 32%, down two points from last week. Liberal leader Justin Trudeau. 30 percent. That's down five points. And the NDP's Jagmeet Singh at 20 points. He's gained in the last week, up five points. Elizabeth May and the Green Party hold steady at 8 percent support. So those are the horse race numbers. Sean Simpson of Ipsos joins me to talk about what's going to motivate people at the polls. Sean, let's begin with the undecided. How many undecided voters are there out there and what kind of impact will they have come Monday.
0: Well, there's two groups of, uh, of undecideds. Uh, about 10% of the population says they still haven't made up their mind about who they're going to vote for on Election Day. And then you've got about 3 in 10 Canadians who, you know, when pressed will make a choice, but when we say, how certain are you? Are you locked in? They say, well, no, not really. So they may waffle back and forth right up until the moment they get into the uh, polling station.
1: Interesting polling late this week that said 71% of Canadians say that what they've heard or read during this campaign has been negative. What kind of impact is that having, do you think, at the polls?
0: Well, interestingly, um, I think many pundits uh, will often say that that is demotivating for people. Uh, they, they, They grow in apathy because they don't like the negativity. But what we're finding in our polling is that it actually works. Those people who have predominantly heard negativity are more likely to say that they're absolutely certain to go out and vote on Election Day. Those who have been exposed to more policy, for example, slightly less likely to say they're going to go out and vote. Let's talk about the issues because
1: we had polling this week that said, for example, SNC-Lavalin scandal, 58% say that's important. But what I found fascinating was you take the blackface scandal from Justin Trudeau, 32%, and then Andrew Shears dual citizenship, 30%, almost equal in Canadians' minds.
0: Yeah, that's right. SNC-Lavanland was important to people, conservative voters mostly, um, and uh, the debates were important for a lot of people as well, a majority, mostly for NDP voters. But for some of these other things that get a lot of attention on social media and talk radio, for example, because they're they're almost funny or just sexy headlines anyway, passports and, and airplanes and even the brown face, black face, Not funny, serious, but um, I think, you know, opinions of, uh, of the prime minister were already based in by the SNC Lavalin affair so that brown face black face issue didn't have as much impact on people
1: when we start talking about the 905 416 905 we do see that the Liberals have a lead there but then vote splitting comes into play how is it possible to make any kind of accurate prediction?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. Normally, we look to Ontario for answers, and what Ontario is providing right now are more questions. A three-point Liberal lead in Ontario in the 9.05, it's probably about five or six points, um, and so it's it's a logjam. Uh, certainly some areas uh, in Mississauga, towards Oakville and Burlington, uh, are, are good pickups for the Tories, likely, and Oshawa on the other end. But the Liberals seem to be showing strength north of the city in, in, in Brampton, for example for example. And now with the NDP rallying in the final days of the campaign, uh, this is a pollster's nightmare um, to try to figure out how it's going to play. And the 905 has at least a dozen key swing ridings. So um, it, it, it's, it's really going to come down to the wire.
1: And, and then we come back to motivating to vote, don't we? Because often we see the NDP poll at one level and then does their
0: vote actually show up come E-Day? Yeah the simple answer is not usually. Uh, We know that NDP supporters are uh, less likely to say they're going to turn up and vote on E-Day. We also know that NDP supporters are less likely to say that they're absolutely certain of their choice. So many of them not locked in yet, less likely to go out and vote. I suspect that what's going to happen is some of Jagmeet Singh's performance or uh, uh, improvement that came as the result of the performance in the debate, people will maybe start to look past that and say, man if my primary goal is to to stop the conservatives i may need to take one last look at justin trudeau and i I think that's in play here you you think about the obama endorsement of trudeau where he
1: what he says is the conservatives must be stopped what kind of a play is that in the last week not just obama's endorsement but people really thinking about progressives really thinking about if my goal here is to stop sheer where do i place my vote
0: Yeah, I think what Obama's vote does is reinforce some of the thoughts that progressive voters already have. They want to punish Justin Trudeau. They're not quite sure where to go. And so they have to balance that with, you know, who do they like, uh, uh, dislike more, uh, uh, sheer in the prospect of a conservative majority or rewarding Justin Trudeau with, with another term in government. On the other side, of course, conservatives, many of them anyway, would be furious with the Obama endorsement and it may make them even more likely to show up uh, and vote as a result. We're almost out of time, Sean. Would you put your money
1: on anything but a minority government coming out of Monday?
0: Nope, I've got all my money on minority government, uh, and uh, if Tories turn up and vote like they normally do, I may even be swaying towards a Tory minority government, but it really could go anyway at this point. There you have it, a wagering pollster, Sean Simpson of Ipsos. Thank
1: you so much <laughs> for being on the program. My pleasure, Alan. And that, of course, is uh, Sean Simpson from Ipsos, and you can watch that interview and the roundup of everything that happened in politics and provincial politics in this province on Focus Ontario this weekend, 5.30 on Saturday, and then 11.30 Sunday morning following the West Block. Opioids in prison. Probably not something you think about, drugs in prison. Trevor Derrick overdosed. On April 20th of 2019, he was only 37 years old. He died at Warkworth Institution near Campbellford, Ontario. He was more than halfway through a two-year, ten-day sentence for a dangerous operation of motor vehicle, operating a motor vehicle while disqualified, and two counts of drug trafficking. But saying that that Trevor was struggling in prison and incarcerated when he died makes it easier for people just simply to tune out of this issue. Where the opioid crisis has been an election issue, it has been in some cases, but prison reform certainly has not been. If Canadians want to address the opioid crisis, which has claimed nearly 1,500 lives last year in Ontario alone, experts say that we need to pay attention to what is happening in our prisons. Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter who has filed a fascinating story on this issue and joins me on the line. Hi, Jamie. Hi, Alan. Why is it that experts say we have to pay attention to what's happening in prison?
3: Because what they're saying is it's directly correlated to this overwhelming crisis that we're seeing on our streets. So essentially, these... Um, people who are suffering from this addiction go into prison um, and, you know, a lot of the crimes that they commit have to sometimes do with their addiction. They go into prison. They're not treated for the addiction. They are using while they're in prison. They get out. They continue to use. The experts we spoke with say if we treated prison more um, clinically than we do correctionally and if we gave people a chance to get treatment in prison, that would then directly affect how they act on the outside, and hopefully clean them up when they get out.
1: Jamie, I know there are going to be listeners who are saying, you know, prison is a place to be punished for wrongful deeds and not a place for rehabilitation necessarily or for investment in you getting better. So why is it that that the experts say that we need to change our thinking?
3: Well, because it's not just affecting people in prison. The opioid crisis killed thousands of people last year. And they're saying, you know what, you can bring in machines, fine. Try and scan how a tiny grain of salt, you know, some fentanyl got into a massive building. But that's a total waste of time when, in fact, you could be putting that money towards treating people for their cravings and their desires, and you might actually be able to help them. And therefore, the crime rate, may also potentially go down. So in Trevor's case, for example, his charges, drug trafficking, as well as dangerous operation of a vehicle were directly linked to his addiction. So what experts are saying is if we help them while they were in prison, because this wasn't his first stint in jail, if we help them while they were in jail rather than, you know, just ignoring the fact that they're using their OD'ing while they're in jail, they are still getting these drugs somehow while they're in prison. We could help them while they're in prison, use prison as a treatment facility, and then once they got out, maybe then they wouldn't commit those crimes. Maybe then there wouldn't be so much opioid use and opioid-related death.
1: One of the things in your story that I hadn't really considered before is that when an addict goes into an institution like that and they're sort of forced to wean off drugs if they can't get any, that their tolerance goes down. And then when they do either score drugs within the institution or perhaps they're released, they go back out in the streets, that is when they are at a particular danger of overdosing.
3: Yeah, so um, Lori Regan Street, she is a family doctor. She, She specializes in addiction, but she also spent time working at a prison for about a year. And she said what she saw when she was there was basically these addicts, they come in. They can't find drugs. So they're basically forced into some sort of detox, that cold turkey type situation. And then somehow these drugs get smuggled in. they take the drugs. And because they've lost their tolerance within those several days, they are more likely and more at risk to overdose. And in my story, I talk about this as well. Correctional Service of Canada did their own study. And they actually revealed themselves that opioid-related overdose have more than doubled between 2012 and 2017. And the problem's only getting worse. 91% of opioid-related deaths in prison are directly linked to opioids. I should say drug deaths are, du- are directly linked to opioids. So that is the overwhelming um, majority. That is the drug that is getting in there: heroin, fentanyl, carfentanyl. Uh, we spoke to an inmate. He said just the other day at Warkworth Institution, they found fentanyl. So this is a problem that's not going anywhere.
1: Jamie Marocker is a global news reporter, and you can see her story on Global News tonight at five thirty and six. Jamie, appreciate you being on the program.
3: Thanks for having
1: me. And I'm wondering what you think of what you've just heard. Does that change your perspective at all? Do you think that this is an issue that we should be paying a little bit more attention to? An ounce of prevention or there's a there's a cliche in there somewhere. Welcome back to the Global News Radio Big Program, and we're going to check in on the campaign trail and something that is making big news on the campaign trail. And because it's so close to Election Day, I think this is going to have an impact. And I don't think it's going to be a good one for the federal conservatives because without offering any supporting evidence, Andrew Scheer told a rally in Fredericton this morning that the liberals will increase the GST to 7.5% if they end up forming a coalition government with the NDP after the election on Monday. And then here is Global Nationalist Mike LeCouture asking Mr. Scheer to provide some kind of evidence about this claim, And listen to the reaction from Conservative supporters. Are you not misleading people by saying that, like, let's... And one more time, where did you get that number from? We are showing Canadians the types of consequences that they will face with an NEP Liberal coalition. Uh, It is quite clear that that is what they are contemplating. Now, today was the first time that an increase in the GST was actually mentioned by any party leader in this election campaign. The liberal leader, Justin Trudeau, says he wants voters to choose a progressive government, but has avoided directly answering questions about what the liberals will do if they win a minority government on October the 21st. But much of this is giving ammunition to Trudeau, who can just point it here and say he is making things up, he's trying to scare people. An NBA-China update right now. The rift between the NBA and China has appeared to widen again as fallout over Houston Rockets general manager Daryl Morley's tweet in support of anti-government protesters in Hong Kong continued. China is now refuting NBA commissioner Adam Silver's claim that it had demanded that the Rockets general manager Morley be fired because of his tweet. When Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey tweeted his support for Hong Kong's pro-democracy demonstrators, the Chinese response was immediate. Preseason games and NBA broadcasts were canceled in China. Behind the scenes...
4: We were being asked to fire him by
1: the Chinese right. government. Says League Commissioner Adam Silver. We said there's no chance that's happening there's no chance we'll even discipline him. At last night's Time 100 health summit, Silver said he does regret that strong and lucrative ties between Chinese fans and the NBA have been damaged by the firestorm. Jim Ryan, ABC News. Now, a spokesperson for China's foreign ministry told reporters that no such demand was made by the government. In all of this is the latest chapter in a now two-week-old saga over that tweet that was quickly deleted but has led to considerable damage in the long relationship between the NBA and China. And the league and LeBron James, of course, one of the biggest sports stars on the planet, have been heavily criticized by some U.S. lawmakers for the perception that they caved in to the Chinese regime. Maury has not been rebuked publicly by the league, and Silver has said that the league will support his freedom of expression, a difficult road to walk there for the commissioner as he tries to mend fences and still placate those who say that the NBA is only about the money and doesn't care about human rights. Ceasefire? What ceasefire? A day after U.S. President Donald Trump hailed a deal to end fighting in northern Syria, the Kurds have accused Turkey of violating... What the U.S. claims is
0: a ceasefire. Hours after the deal was struck yesterday, the president bragged everybody won. It's a great thing for civilization. But the agreement's already being tested, with fighters on both sides clashing around a border town. Turkey's president denies there's been any fighting today and says the Kurds are pulling out, which they deny. In Brussels, EU Council President Donald Tusk is among those blasting the deal. It's a so called ceasefire. This is not what we expected. Saying it's not a ceasefire as much as a demand that. That the Kurds give in and pull back from border towns. Sagar Magani at the White House.
1: I have feral pig news. The U.S. Department of Agriculture has captured hundreds of feral pigs, but mayors in U.S. cities say it is just a fraction of the problem. 450 feral pigs have been picked up uh, in Guam, but the mayor's council of Guam says the increase in pigs destroying crops and scaring residents Continues to increase every day. And some mayors in the U.S. say they have trapped 6 to 10 wild pigs weekly in their own villages. And that raises concerns about human health and safety. And you say to yourself, why do I care about feral pigs? Because they're here, folks. Ontarians are being urged to keep an eye out for the wild pigs as the animals continue to wreak havoc across our province. The Ministry of Natural Resources and Forestry now wants you to call in and to report all sightings of the feral animals. And the ministry has actually created a new email address to make it easier to do that. We want people who spot a wild pig to let us know. Members of the public from French River down to Lake Erie and east to the Ottawa Valley have already reported sightings of feral pigs. Figuring out how many wild pigs there are here in the province and their behaviors and precisely where they are living will help inform conservation workers about the best ways to control their numbers. Feral pigs, people. End of days. Thank you so much for spending some time on this Friday. Here's some stories that I've been watching, stories I like. Would you travel to Hong Kong? Well, Hong Kong airline Cathay Pacific says passenger traffic has slumped last month, plummeting demand, especially from mainland Chinese travelers. The carrier's September traffic figures released Friday are the latest sign that mainland visitors are staying away from the Chinese city, the Chinese semi-autonomous city, because of those pro-democracy protests. And, of course, many people, many uh, Westerners use Hong Kong as a gateway into China, and the company said that flight bookings are down dramatically because people just simply are not going to hong kong anymore next up cheating pharmacists cheating pharmacists in california california authorities now have invalidated test scores of 1400 pharmacists because more than 100 questions from the state licensing exam were leaked online and the State Board of Pharmacy says anyone who took the exam since July is going to have to take the thing again. Now, how how's about that? He's like, I, I didn't cheat too bad, but I got a 95 too bad. The board said it became aware of potential widespread cheating in September and decided to withhold test results for those who recently took the exam. It announced this week that those results will be invalidated. In back to the books, pharmacists. And I didn't know about this, but apparently it is not in the U.S. Constitution. You are not protected to be able to watch pornography in your car because a state court in New Jersey has now upheld a man's conviction on an obscenity charge for watching a porn video on his iPad while sitting in a car outside of a fast food restaurant. The 53 year old was charged with obstruction in a count of public communication of obscenity. He was convicted back in May of 2017, sentenced to two concurrent one year terms of probation, five years in jail. He served all of that, but then he said no. Got to go back to court. The man claimed that watching porn in the privacy of his car is protected under the U.S. Constitution. The court said no, it is not. Are you hungry? because the World Poutine Eating Championships are happening right here in Toronto at Yonge Dundas Square tomorrow, 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. This year, the championship will feature a professional eat-off, plus a CEO charity eat-off, where some of Canada's most successful CEOs will compete for a charitable cause. The largest poutine competition and second-largest professional eating contest in the world. It is actually sanctioned by the major league eating mle which is the actual there's a league for eating did you know this i don't know if you this is actually a thing competitive eating and i know you're asking yourself well i like i like poutine i maybe i go down there maybe i'll go down there maybe i'll compete maybe i could win myself a championship well this is this is the mark that you have to set because on october 1st 2016 Joey chestnut set a world record in poutine discipline. That's actually a discipline in eating. He ate 25.5 pounds of poutine in 10 minutes. Uh. I just got 25 pounds of poutine in 10 minutes. Mira Estrada is with us today. She is the host of Cultured on Global News Radio, 640 Toronto, which you can hear Saturdays at 8 p.m. Do you like poutine, Mira? Uh,
4: I do. I I don't know if I can beat any of these porn and poutine stories, but... Porn and poutine together. Let's try. Let's try this.
1: Extra gravy on your porn. (laughs) Let's begin with Jennifer Aniston breaking the internet this week. What's that all about?
4: Yes. So she now holds the... Guinness Book of World Records for reaching 1 million followers in just 5 hours and 16 minutes, beating out Meghan Markle and Prince Harry, who were the prior holders. That is pretty crazy. And now in just a few days, I think she's at 13.6 million followers. She only has three posts.
1: Three posts. Three posts. And post number one was uh, a picture of her and all of her friends' co-stars, which led you to ask the question... What are you, are you? just hanging out with those people? And she actually answered that question recently. I have a bit of that. Let's play a bit of this.
2: We just had dinner this week
4: on Saturday. The whole night. gang. Yeah, the whole gang. Everyone um, was there. Everyone was there. Why, um, why? Is that? Is that something that is uh, unusual? Or no, um, it's just swimmer was in town,
0: and um, we all happened to have a window of time, so we we all I got together. That. So did we.
4: You really like that?
0: Oh my god, we laughed so hard. No yes. one in that crew annoyed you? Not one. Really. Lightning in a bottle. Where'd you guys have dinner? Where can you go?
1: Courts.
2: To... At oh. At Courtney's.
1: At her house. hmm Anything. That is Jennifer Aniston speaking with Howard Stern about that photo. You mm-hmm. buy that? They all get along?
4: Yeah. If you see people once in a while, I'm pretty sure you get along. But also, so that post went viral as well because somebody asked, are you and Ross still together? And she wrote back, well, we're on a break. And then everybody went <laughs> crazy. <laughs>
1: I, when I looked at that photo, I thought to myself, which of the other friends hates Aniston the most because they're jealous of her success?
4: Don't make me go there.
1: Do you think that Courtney maybe? No? I don't know. I it's just, I, I I think it's great that they're no, all her together. and Courtney
4: are really good friends.
1: I, I, and I, I take it uh, at face value. <clears throat> uh, you know
4: who might not be enjoying their time right now? Who's that? Or maybe jail time, Felicity Huffman.
1: Oh yeah, tell me about that. What do you got?
4: Yeah, so she has actually managed to shave off one day of her fourteen-day prison sentence.
1: I'm I'm sorry, one day. <laughs> yeah. Okay.
4: So from fourteen days, she is now only facing a thirteen-day sentence. She is actually currently serving her time right now um, in her low facility, low
1: low security low security
4: yeah. facility. Yeah. Playing a lot of ping Um, pong, probably. (laughs) She's also paid off the $30,000 fine already.
1: Do you think she's in the yard working out?
4: No, she might be buff when she gets out (laughs) on October
1: 27th. Maybe she gets some prison tats.
4: She's out right in time for Halloween. I mean, there's a costume.
1: Uh Maleficent is out. This is a, a new movie with uh, Angelina Jolie. This is this is a sequel?
4: Is yeah, it? this is a sequel. Twenty fourteen was the original. This is a sequel. Angelina Jolie returns as Maleficent. Al Fanning is back. And then there's another new character who, Michelle Pfeiffer, joins the cast Ooh. in a big role. So
1: Jolie here saying, here is uh, Miss Jolie talking, Angelina Jolie talking about how she can in some ways relate to her film character.
4: I like that within this story she really questions when somebody says you're not good enough, she quickly feels, well maybe I'm not, maybe I shouldn't be, And, um, and then kind of discovers that the child helps her to know herself.
1: That is Angelina Jolie. Is that a movie that you would shell out? What is it? Twelve bucks now? Well, how much is it to go to a movie? I don't go to movies. It
4: depends. You can I go like to the go fifty dollar
1: theater. Yeah. Is it? You is get it, wine and cheese plate and alcohol if you want. I yeah, do that It's like called my couch. Yeah. <laughs> that's what I.
4: <laughs> what I do want of Maleficent is the cheekbones. I know they're kind of scary, but they're also kind this of. This
1: is the now. This is the movie. If you don't know the movie, this is the, with the giant headpiece with the giant <laughs> horns. Yes. This is the thing.